At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, and Karen Feinerman will join us in just a few minutes. Tonight on Fast, a red alert in energy. Natural gas prices going wild. We're breaking down the big move and the key names to trade. Plus, Tim says this is the one chart that should have every investor concerned, what it is and how he is trading it. And later, Elon Musk, a dog, and a crypto triple. Don't worry, we'll explain. We start off with breaking news from GM. Shares on the move after the company set new targets for revenue and operating margins. Let's get straight to Phil Lebeau, who's in Warren, Michigan, with all the headlines from the Investor Day. Phil. Melissa, we're getting a little more clarity from CFO Paul Jacobson about how General Motors plans to double its revenue annually by 2030. As you take a look at shares of General Motors, ticking a little bit higher after hours, a couple of things to keep in mind from the targets that have just been set out. They do plan to double their annual revenue to about $280 billion by 2030. They get there by taking 140, which was the annual revenue pre-COVID, and they say, look, we think we can double it. They're targeting margins of 12 to 14 percent. And the EV revenue by 2030, $90 billion. For a point of context, they only expect to be doing $9 billion in EV revenue in 2023, a couple of years from now. Targeting 20 to $25 billion of that revenue that they plan to achieve by 2030, that would be coming from services and subscriptions. And that's been a big part of the theme today, that they really want to use services and subscriptions for people who have a new electric vehicle or an autonomous vehicle or an autonomous vehicle service from the company. And they also plan to lead the U.S. in EV sales, which has people saying, well, can they get there? Take a look at GM and Tesla and these stocks. No comparison over the last couple of years in terms of market share. There's also no comparison at this time either. We asked LMC Automotive to run the numbers in 2021. Tesla controls 63% of the U.S. EV sales. General Motors is number three in the U.S. with 9%. They've got a huge hill to climb to catch up with Tesla. CEO Mary Barra tells me they think they can get there because they will be able to have a broader portfolio of vehicles, and that portfolio will appeal to more people, and over time, that will uh, help them increase their sales. And finally, as you take a look at uh, shares of General Motors, I want to keep you uh, posted on what's happening with Paul Jacobson. They just finished a question and answer session. He's coming right here to our camera. We will be talking with him first on CNBC, coming up in, uh, what, about 45 minutes. We'll ask him some of these more detailed questions. But, guys, there's no doubt that General Motors is trying to leverage all the investments it's making, $35 billion in electric and autonomous vehicles, and they believe that they can leverage that into people buying electric vehicles and, more importantly, using those vehicles for subscriptions, whether it's on a monthly basis or a new service that they will pay for to run through that vehicle. Guys, back to you. Phil, does General Motors have the battery capacity, the, the supply, if you will, to right. guarantee that they can actually reach these goals? 
They say they will have it. Look, they're building four battery plants. Two of them have already been announced. One that will open next year in Lordstown, Ohio. Another one in Spring Hill, Tennessee that will be opening in 2023. Two more that have been announced, but they haven't told us the sites and exactly when they will uh, come online. Look, the real ramp up is going to happen 2025 to 2028. That's when you're going to see a, a slew of electric vehicles coming online for General Motors, being offered for sale, and you'll also have these battery plants as well as their final assembly plants. Either they're currently building electric vehicles like Factory Zero or will be in a, in a matter of months, or they will be retrofitted. So taking existing final assembly plants and as EV sales ramp up, they will convert those, either all of them or part of them, into electric vehicle assembly lines. Phil, and one last question. You said GM is number three right now in EV market share in the U.S. What is number yep. two? Volkswagen, 11 percent. Ah. So right now you've got and, and those guys are one, two, three worldwide, by the way. They are mm -hmm. one, two, three worldwide. They're one, two, three here in the U.S. But make no mistake, Tesla is way ahead, 63 percent market share. And we asked LMC Automotive, where do you think Tesla is by 2030? And they said, look, they won't have as much market share by 2030, but they still will have a very strong market share by 2030, in their opinion. All right. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, we look forward to the you interview bet. with uh, the CFO of GM. That's first on CNBC here on Fast Money. Tim Seymour, how do you trade GM? The stock didn't move all too much on all this news. Yeah, we, we've heard a lot of this news, right? And also when someone tells me something's going to happen by the end of the decade and it's early in the decade, like the decade almost just started, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot to prove here. I think GM has a lot to prove. I think GM has already made a significant commitment to autonomous. I think the, the putting the money after the EV business and again, some of the software and services, look, the announcement that Bright Drop, which is their last mile EV services business, is going to be a $10 billion revenue business by the end of the decade, really exciting, but a long, long way to go. And I think that's, you know, what I said yesterday was the market almost values GM now like their core business, the internal combustion engine business actually has a, a you know, very limited terminal value. And at some point it's going to be obsolete. Well, GM knows that. And, and I think you know, all of their uh, profession about they are going to be X by X is great. Look, uh, 90 billion from 10 billion in EV revenue by the end of uh, so from 23, they expect to be roughly 10 billion in EV revenue, 90 billion by the end of the decade. You know, if you want to do the math and have some fun with this, Tesla's somewhere around 48, 49 billion estimate sales in 2021. That's not necessarily all EV sales it's some of the other services, too. But um, and Tesla's a $772 billion market cap. So clearly, there are two companies that are valued very differently. Um, they probably should be. I've certainly pointed out that I, I think Tesla at times not really an auto company based upon that valuation. But this is GM's day, and it's great news. But haven't we heard a lot of this news before? As a, as a GM bull and, and owner of the stock, great stuff. Um, I think they need to put their head down and continue to do this. The concept of recurring revenue, Karen, seems very appealing, uh, even though this is sort of a long ways off, as, as Tim would, would put it. But let's, let's say we, we get to 2030 and they checked all the boxes. Does it deserve a Tesla valuation? Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to get a Tesla valuation to have it be a good do from here. I don't know if it does. The other part of that, it's an excellent question. What's the Tesla valuation at that time mm -hmm. if GM does all the things yeah. that GM says they can do, right? So Tesla's not going to have a, you know, 46 percent 
better market share than GM at that time, if GM can do what it says. Uh, I agree with Tim, though. I mean, it's GM is a show me story, even when they show the numbers right now, right now. And still, so, you know, it still trades at a low multiple. So the idea that we're going to jump on and get really excited about 2030 is sort of hard to fathom because even right now, when they put up very good numbers, I feel like it doesn't really get so much respect. But um, I, I remain with Tim, bullish, long. I would have thought this, they have been sort of telegraphing this, uh, mm -hmm. but I thought those were good numbers. Um, we'll see. It's we'll see i think we're going to get a few cars we'll start i'm really interested in how the lyric does which is their cadillac ev that's coming out in 2022 guy does your thinking around gm change much versus 24 hours ago now that gm has put forth targets for 2030 i mean do could you put out targets for 2030 on your life i mean that's that's a long ways off is the point yeah i i actually could i'll be you 97 uh, I'm sure I'm sure I'll have like a, a name tag. I, no, I no. The short answer is absolutely not. But let's just uh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. First of all, you know, Karen mentioned the show me story. They should move all their EV facilities to Missouri. That would be brilliant. We're moving to the show me state and we will show you folks. I mean, I don't know if GM is watching, but that's pretty clever. And if you ask me and if double revenues by then, that sounds great. But really what you're talking about in that period of time is eight and a half percent growth rate ish, which is fine. So you have to ask yourself, the question you asked Karen, do they deserve a test evaluation? Absolutely not. But based on that growth, what is the right valuation? And I would submit it's not where we are now. It's somewhere closer to 10 or 11 times earnings, which, again, gets mm -hmm. you, given the $7 they're going to earn-ish, a $70 stock. I don't think that's implausible, and I think that's pretty realistic, given the environment that we find ourselves in. I mean, the Tesla valuation has a little bit of, uh, you know, pixie dust, if you will. I mean, it's got a lot of these other sort of bets, um, you know, the battery technology in, in terms of the power wall and other uses of the battery technology, not just an auto company, Steve. I'm wondering what your thoughts on Tesla are, given the low valuation that GM and Ford, throw Ford in there too, have. Right. So, so I, I Karen brought up an interesting uh, point, and I, I think this is the only thing that you can glean from any of this is that when we get there, Tesla is at 63% market share now, I believe Phil said. So that market share is going to drop from now till then. That, that's my takeaway, whether it's fact or not, that's the way I, I look at it. Having said that, I think it is pretty exciting when you look at uh, a company like GM talking about $2 billion in revenue going to $25 billion by 2030 in, in, in basically services. That we've seen what they can do with OnStar. Now they're going to integrate Alexa, which they've, which they've done already, into the car. So I think they're doing all the right things. The stock is up 30% year to date. Are people going to get excited about it now, to Tim's point, when it's 2030? No. But do you feel like they're making the right moves and skating to where the, where the puck is going to be? Absolutely. Having said that, Ford's chart looks better uh, technically, and we haven't heard anything about what they're going to do by 2030, or we haven't focused on it myopically, uh, but the stock is up 60% year to date. But the way you started the question about Tesla, there's, it's whack-a-mole. There's too many things 
that go into the calculus of how Tesla is valued. So do you sell Tesla on the fact that they're not going to have 63% of the market share? No, because then there'll be a bullish note coming out about Tesla's battery storage. So Tesla has figured out how to crack the code. Given all, given all that, Tesla stock is only up 10% year to date. It's a high growth name, high multiple name. So, so there's something to be said for switching out of Tesla, going into a battery company, and going into a GM and a Ford, playing all, all the different roles that Tesla currently does. I want to ask the shareholders, because we will have the CFO on Fast Money in a first on CNBC interview. Uh, Karen, what would you ask them? What do you want to know at this point? I'm curious as to whether or not they'll reinstate the dividend, right? They, they used what I thought was an opportunity to just hoard the cash during the pandemic. And I don't know what that, so I'm interested in that. I don't know what the right answer is to that though. On, on one thing, I think you've got a giant CapEx spend for the next several years in front of you. What is it, 30 some odd billion dollars? Maybe don't pay a dividend or just pay a very small one. I'm curious about that capital allocation. Tim, how about you? I want to hear a little bit more about the potential vertical integration between kind of hardware software. Some of the things, by the way, that have insulated Tesla during some of these chip shortages. Um, that has been one of Tesla's benefits and that they are more vertically integrated, whereas a lot of the partial built for the OEMs are related to they just they just don't do half. They're not in half of these businesses. So what are they going to have to spend? What's the timeline for that? And then again, back to those EBIT margins, 12 to 14 percent. Great. Um, is this linear? Is there are there economies of scale that are needed to get there? Uh, do we get there quickly? The profitability here is very important. And again, um, do they sacrifice profitability to get there with all this capex? I hope not. In the past, GM has done that. All right. Hopefully we'll get some answers again. As we mentioned, GM's CFO will join us in a first on CNBC interview a little bit later on in the show. OK, coming up next. Coming up next, we are going to talk about a 14 billion dollar deal. One activist investor calling for Macy's to spin off its e-commerce unit. We'll kick that around when Fast Money returns. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Jana Partners is taking aim at Macy's, the activist investor, urging the department store chain to spin off its e-commerce business into a separate entity. Jana saying the move could be worth about $14 billion, or roughly double Macy's currency market cap. We've seen this playbook before with Saks and what it did with its e-commerce unit. That's the argument that Jana is making. Karen, I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are on this. Well, I think Jana is a great activist investor. You might remember they sort of pushed Whole Foods and ultimately Amazon acquired them. They've done a number of, of activist investments. I don't see them having owned any stock at their last 13F, but that was in June. So they clearly could have made the position, uh, bought the position since then. It's interesting. I mean, if you do use Saks, which has about a $2 billion, I think, uh, enterprise value, which was about 2 and 2.4 times revenue, uh, when they did that deal, which is not a public deal. So I'm not sure the split of how of Macy's online versus in-store, but it's not, it's not a crazy, crazy multiple. It is interesting. I always wonder, though, when you do this e-commerce split, how do you allocate a sale that maybe starts in the store mm -hmm. and they say, all right, we don't have your size, but we can send you, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how that gets solved. So I've never quite fully understood that. But you know, we've had, we've tried Macy's a bunch of the real estate, was it, whether it was a REIT, whether it was monetizing real estate, some success there. But it's not a bad idea. I'm surprised the stock actually didn't react more. I don't yeah. own it, though. Up 1.2% on the day. Um, Guy, I think that's a good point because so many of these e-commerce success stories involve multi-channel, which could be that the, that the sale, uh, you know, originates either online or in store and you can return it any way you want to. So it sounds like it sounds a bit of alchemy to me. Listen, I mean, at the end, clearly, I'm certain their goal was to make this, if in fact they are shareholders, to Karen's point, they want the stock to go higher. And maybe it will make the stock go higher. I just don't know what it does to Macy's business and what really are you left with. And to Karen's point, stock didn't trade particularly well. Maybe it was a function of a lot of things to tape. The stock has had a decent run. So I'm not sure where this goes. I think Macy's can go higher anyway. It has been trending higher. If you look at it, and we've talked about it, Tim's been on this for a while as well as Karen, for quite some time. So I think you'd stay with the stock uh, before this news, and this probably gives you a bit of a tailwind now. This is one uh, that you own, Tim. So would you like to see this? Look, digital penetration is already going to be 42% out the next year or two, depending on which analyst you listen to. Uh, the fact that they have $2 billion in real estate, the fact that they have a free cash flow yield uh, now of about 15%. I mean, this is a very different company. Store count, again, remember what COVID forced them to do, which they should have been doing and were doing. Um, store count goes from 640 down to 500. This is, this is a very interesting story. I'm not sure you need this type of a catalyst, which this would be. And then you get back to this, some of the parts, Karen referred to this, we've been down this road with this company before. Very different balance sheet. They actually could be talking about a dividend. I mean, this is a very different company. You know, they, they, they understand their inventory, they understand their data set. Uh, I'm not sure they need to do this. Yeah, Grasso, your thoughts? Yeah, so when, when I look at it, I, I, I like Tim's point that it's a very different company. It's a different balance sheet because from 2018 to 2020, the stock dropped 56% for all of those reasons of the old company that, that that was plagued with. But back then, we were all talking about the real estate, the REIT option, optionality of it. But pre-pandemic, the stock was trading around $16 or $17. It's a little bit higher than where, where it is there. But I'm a firm believer in... Whatever was weak pre-pandemic 
is going to come out on the back end week post pandemic. And I think with the stock up 99%, that's why you didn't see the stock react to this. I think it's run pretty decently for all, all things being uh, equal and fair. And it's going to take a little bit more than just one headline from an activist to sort of get the ducks in a row, if you will. All right. We're just, uh, Tim, go ahead quickly. Well, really quickly, short interest on the stock is a big part of the stock move and also where when you see a move like this, you could see some more people running to cover. There's still, you know, north of 10% short interest. Good point there. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Energy alert. Net gas prices going wild. The three main factors at play and the key energy stocks you need to watch. Plus, it's time for trade school. Our own Professor Tim Seymour is giving a lesson in the almighty dollar. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some wild swings in the energy market today. Check out Nat Gas, a commodity pulling back in a big way today following a huge run-up. Let's get to Brian Sullivan with more on what's driving this action. Brian. Melissa, well, what's not driving the action is probably a better question. All right, a wild day for Nat Gas here, but particularly in Europe. Prices did pull, pull back, as you said. We'll call that the Putin put, if you will. He's talking about adding supplies and all nicey-nice about the Nord Stream 2. Really, this is a political play for him to just get the Nord Stream approved, but let's take it easy. Natural gas price is still well above prices of just, you know, two weeks ago. Oil here closing in on 80 bucks above that in Europe. And now the Biden administration talking about a ban on crude oil exports. So all that, we are in a very good place compared to the rest of the world. Let us go global. It's almost like a worldwide exchange. Anyway, in Europe, nat gas surging today to new records. It was at 400 pence per unit. Where's Wilfred Frost? What does that mean? All right, it usually is around 50 pence. So about 500% above normal in UK. Coal prices, yes, coal soaring, nearly doubling in the last few weeks. That is causing wholesale electricity prices to jump four or 500% right now across much of Europe. It's all happening for a few reasons. Number one, big boom in demand coming out of COVID. Two, wind power hasn't been generating what was expected. They need the electricity from somewhere. And three, the UK, just being the UK, has very little natural gas storage. They rely on buying a lot on the spot market. You've also got energy chaos in Asia. China paying 25 or 30 bucks for LNG right now. It's normally about 10 to 12 there. And now there's talk, guys, they may convert some natural gas or coal power plants to oil. Aramco, CEO yesterday, saying that could happen and boost oil demand by 500,000 barrels a day if it does, which I don't need to tell you because it's, you know, math would eat all of OPEC's supply increase that they just put on the market the other day. From a natural gas stock perspective, these names have been on Fuego, Antero Resources, EQT, Tellurian, Chenier. They're up 60, 100, and 200% this year. And you guys can talk about whether or not they're played out, but I'll add one more thing. Right, the guy Adami. And one more thing. Since natural gas prices are used by so many industrial companies like chemicals or whatever, also look at things like fertilizer makers like CF and Mosaic. 
because they may be able to profit off of natural gas arbitrage. We get the gas relatively cheap. In Europe, it's soaring. Anybody that plays that difference, whatever the industry, might be a big thing. And by the way, if, if it spikes chemical fertilizer prices, that's a food inflation story as well. So that's a lot of stuff I just threw out. It's kind of a word salad. I hope it made some sense. <laughs> it was a delicious, you know, chopped variety, uh, Brian. But I, I do have a question in terms of, um, you know, part of this speaks to underinvestments, perhaps over the years in natural gas to this point. And I'm wondering, even if they, even if, if let's say the UK invested, invested in storage, et cetera, et cetera, it, it could take a while for this all to iron out, the supply issue, no? Yeah, it certainly could. And Brexit plays a role in this as well, too, because the UK gets a lot of its electricity from France. France is threatening to withhold or pull back on or even cut off electricity supplies to the UK because there's some dispute over fishing rights in the English Channel. I mean, literally, you can't make this up. It's like 1767 all over again. UK wants to go all green, which is great. Renewables are fantastic. But windmills only generate power if the wind is blowing, and that has been hurting. The fact that there's a race for coal, guys, the price of coal has nearly doubled in three weeks. And I'll say this, the best performing commodity this year is coal. It's up 170 or 180 percent. It's insane. Brian, it's always great to see you. We'll see you tomorrow morning on Worldwide Exchange. Yeah, like Brian two hours. Sun. Thanks. <laughs> Brian Sullivan, maybe four. Um, Guy Dami, what do you think? How do you how do you play this energy quagmire that we've got? Well, it's a great job by Brian. The, I mean, when the fate of Europe literally is in the hands of Vladimir Putin, I mean that that's problematic. I think we would all agree on that. That's uh, nonpartisan stuff there, and it's quite frankly probably mm -hmm. the truth. I mean, the prices he described, he's not making it up. That's what's going on. We've actually talked about nat gas. You brought up Phil Chenier a couple weeks ago. We Wax poetic about that. How do you play it? Well, some of these names are volatile. Uh, Tellurian, for example, I mean, that stock moves percentage points a day. But Southwest Energy, SWN, a pretty interesting place. You mentioned Chenier. We'll talk about that. But this is real. Obviously came off today. But this Nat Gas story is not over. And oh, by the way, Brian said it. It all comes back down to inflation. And if you don't think that's inflationary, and if you think somehow magically it's going to sort itself out, um, it ain't. Grasso, I feel like Tellurian is a name you might be in. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually not in that name. But when you look at, it's an interesting point, though. When you look at a stock like uh, Antero, um, AR is the ticker, or a stock like Range Resources, those stocks are up 265%, 235% respectively. So some of them hedge, some of them don't. The first one doesn't hedge, range does hedge. So my point in all this is it's very difficult to understand the granularity of buying a nat gas stock. I would say that the nat gas commodity is dependent on whether we're gonna have a cold winter or a warmer winter. So all this wrapped up in a nutshell, I'd rather be a buyer of large integrated names. ExxonMobil's up 46% year-to-date, benefiting from the switch from growth into value. And then I don't know, have to know all of the granularity involved around investing in that gas. It's just too difficult. Why not coal? 
I feel like this is Fast Money circa, I don't know, 2009 when we were talking about <laughs> Peabody and Consol Energy, et cetera, Tim. They've had monster runs, though. Well, it, I mean, it, it could be Gazprom 20 years ago is the best trade in, in any market. And this is, you know, the company at the center of this. I, I agree. Coal prices are a harbinger for higher oil prices. And, and I think they're going higher. This is greenflation. We've talked about inflation. We've talked about, uh, you know, decades of low capex. This is greenflation. And there's a lot of different factors that make that up. Coming up, our big interview with GM's chief financial officer. He's fresh off the company's investor day. He's joining us first. That can't-miss interview is just moments away. But first, class is in session. Professor Tim Seymour is breaking down the one chart he says should have investors concerned. What it is and how he's trading it when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the dollar hitting its highest level in more than a year. Tim says that could be a big problem for your money. He's got the charts to prove it. Trade school's in session. Professor Seymour, take it away. Very important trade school because for investors, understanding the impact of a stronger dollar is is important both in terms of the theory behind it and also what the market implications could be. So let's talk about this 15-month highs on the dollar. Um, this could be a factor of the Fed getting more in gear or more cyclicality in the market. But but what are things to think about when you see uh, the dollar strengthening in terms of past history? First of all, often a stronger dollar can be a sign of risk off. And it's a sign of risk off because often there are carry trades where people borrow with cheap money, right? Everywhere. Fed liquidity, borrowing in dollars and investing in higher yielding assets in other asset classes. When you have to unwind those trades, you sell those assets, you buy dollars, dollar rallies. It's one sign. Is it the tail or the dog? Well, we'll see. I think the other dynamic really is, is a case where you've got um, the dollar still what all the crypto folks want to want to push around, but it's still the global reserve currency. So when you see a flight to quality, you see a flight to dollars. And, and unfortunately, uh, for a lot of the other currencies in the world, this can have devastating impact as asset flows back to dollars uh, and put other currencies in, in their wake. Finally, the, the, the stronger dollar could also be a function of central bank differentials. Look, critical of the Fed or not, it is still our Fed and our Fed your problem. And other central banks may be a step or two behind the, the Fed. In fact, they're typically following behind the Fed. Um, the sign of the dollar moving higher here may be a sense that our global central bank uh, is moving faster than other global central banks. So something to think about. So what does this do to the markets and what are the asset classes most at risk? Well, first of all, again, we, we talked a little bit about the impact on other currencies and other interest rate dynamics. So think about other parts of the world, especially emerging markets. A rising dollar historically, and I've used this term uh, and I know we use this on the show, a rising dollar is a wrecking ball for emerging market currencies and often their, their rates markets. That often in the past is, could have led to some type of a shock, which leads to a credit event, which leads to other dominoes falling. We've seen this movie before. Um, if you think about just the, the, the dynamic here of commodities, and we talked about where oil prices are still holding up very well for other dynamics tonight, but uh, commodities are priced in dollars. Certainly commodities as, a, as an asset class tend to underperform when the dollar is rising. So that's something to think about. Ultimately, I think if you're if you're looking at multinationals, while sometimes it's great that we have a strong currency here and we talk about the percentage of the multinationals in the S&P that have exposure to international revenues and it's north of 50 percent, if the dollar is too strong, it makes those goods a lot more expensive and less competitive uh, in other parts of the world. And it's something that equities tend to price in. So, again, a couple charts here. If you look at, first of all, the shorter chart, two years, I mentioned we're at 15 month highs. Look at where the dollar was going into COVID. 
We were closer to a 98 handle on the DXY, which again is a basket of the dollar against its core currency crosses, mostly the euro, but also the pound, the yen. Uh, and so it just tells me if we're starting to normalize, the dollar really could be moving higher. And again, some of that is implying the Fed will be taking liquidity out of the market. If you look at the long-term chart, the 10-year chart, look, go back to 2014 and see that huge dollar rally, which also was painful at times for the equity markets. And that was a sense then that the Fed was starting to move more aggressively. We may be getting that again. So, Guy, we're just coming off of a segment about rising commodities, about how, mm -hmm. you know, what is the, the best performing commodity of the year? It's coal, it's nat gas, it's WTI crude, and yet we have a stronger a strengthening dollar. So can you sort of walk me through that? Much different stories. I mean, yeah, typically, obviously, a weaker dollar is going to be a tremendous tailwind for the things we mentioned. And obviously, a stronger dollar is a bit of a headwind, if nothing else, but it ain't stopping it. And these are two completely separate stories, in my opinion. Now, say what you want, but every administration since Truman would be talking about a stronger dollar policy. President Trump, say what you want about him. He actually correctly pointed out that's the last thing we want here in this country now. A strong dollar is great for you and our buying power as citizens, but it's miserable if you're $30 trillion in the hole. So if this dollar continues to go higher, the effects that it could potentially have on a number of things could be, I, I don't want to use the word catastrophic, but it could be really scary stuff. All right. Up next, our first on CNBC interview with GM CFO Paul Jacobson, fresh off the company's investor day. The big interview is up right after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. GM laying out new revenue and margin targets as the company deepens its push into EVs. Let's get back to Phil LeBeau in Warren, Michigan, with the first on CNBC interview with GM CFO Paul Jacobson. Phil. Thank you, Melissa. Let's bring in Paul Jacobson, CFO of General Motors, joining us uh, here after taking some questions from analysts. The big question I think everybody has is you're going to double your revenue. At least that's your projection by the end of this decade. How do you get there? And, and should people really buy into the idea that you can get there? Well, first of all, it's great to, great to see you, and thanks for being here, Phil. It's really an exciting time um, for us, and I think you heard a lot of that excitement coming through all the senior leaders today. What we really wanted to get out today is this is a very, very different time in the auto industry and once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. And what those opportunities are going to do is lay the groundwork for us to double our revenues while expanding our margins through 2030. We're going to do that by continuing to offer the high-quality vehicles that you've seen today that you got to experience. Um, and also, the most important part of this is the new connected vehicle environment. So when you look at the software capabilities of the vehicle, the sheer scale and volume that General Motors is able to put out with our brands and with the, the flexibility of the Ultium platform, it really speaks to a huge revenue opportunity beyond the new purchase of the vehicle that is new to us. And because of that, when you look at that with uh, 20 to $25 billion of software annual opportunities, as well as $50 billion opportunities of, of revenue from crews that we outlined today, as well as the growth in the EV portfolio, you start to see a recipe where we've got a lot of confidence in our ability to really take this to a different level. It sounds great on paper, and I'm not trying to yeah. rain on your parade, but the stock didn't really move very much during the presentations today. And one thing I heard back from a few people is, yeah, there are a lot of ifs here if autonomous vehicle technology takes off, if crews can expand as quickly as they're talking, yep. if people will do the subscriptions in their vehicles as you're projecting them to. You have to admit, there are a lot of ifs in there. 
No, that's absolutely right. But, you know, I think what we wanted to convey today is a very different mentality. This is a growth mentality, a startup mentality, if you will, that we're incubating here. So whether you're talking about subscription services, where we've gone in very detailed customer forums, we've given data surveys as to what the products are, shown them what the cumulative effect of their purchases are, and all that is informed what we think is the attachment rate and for our customers. And in fact, you guys said you think people, on average, from your research, will spend $135 a month on their subscriptions for their vehicles. That's what they've indicated to us with that. And the great thing about it is they had the ability to stack benefits on top of each other. So it wasn't just, oh, I like this, I don't like that. They knew at the end of the day what those effects were. But that shows the compelling value in software. And when you look at autonomous, Phil, that's what we really wanted to convey today. This is sooner than most people think. Most people think that this is far off, but I think what you heard from Dan today and the team at Cruz and what we're gonna show to some investors tomorrow that are here in person is this is very real and it's here. And we see the scalability of this thing as, as inevitable. Now there's gonna be a lot of things along sure. the journey, but as we look at the, the attachment rates, as we look at the transformation that's underway, that mentality of the confidence of being able to execute is what we want people to leave here today. That's the potential. Let's talk about the reality right now. Yep. Karen Feinerman on our show brought up a good point. What's happening with the dividend? When do people say GM will reinstate the dividend to where it was, or do they say, you know what, big capital spend, that dividend is never really going to go back to where we thought it would be? Yeah, I think consistently with what we've said, we're continuing to assess that within both the mentality of how we're thinking about the business, because we want to make sure that we've got the capital. We established that clearly today as the number one priority is to invest capital in these opportunities. That being said, we're hearing from a lot of shareholders, and we respect the need to maintain some level of dividend. And what we've been articulating throughout the year is we want some uh, a little bit less volatility in what we see in the chips. As Mary articulated in the Q&A on our webcast, we're still seeing some week-to-week -week volatility. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. It's more good than bad as we start to see the trends coming out of the third quarter and into 2022. But we feel confident that we're going to continue to look at that and announce a dividend at the right time. And that brings up my second question with regard to the chips. Mary said we're looking at a variety of options. What are some of those options on the table? So, you know, I think um, we, and as well as many others, um, are looking at things. So, you know, I think you look all the way from, do you look at long-term purchase commitments, right? That's historically something that the industry has shied away from. But the reality is we know we need these. We know the manufacturers of the chips at the end of the day are facing their own uh, pressures uh, in terms of their customers and their ability to produce. So approaching partnerships in a new different way, working with the engineering team to make sure that we're modifying and being able to combine chips where it's sure. possible. A lot of strategic things, but I think the important thing is all levels of the organization, engineering, supply chain, purchasing, manufacturing, all pulling together in a way that is very special for me to see as a newcomer to the team, watching the collaboration that happens to find the best solution for our customers and for our shareholders. $280 billion in annual revenue by 2030. You think you can get there? I think we can get there. Paul Jacobson, CFO of General Motors. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Good of him to come over here uh, after the Q&A session. Melissa, you heard it from him. He thinks they can get there. And we also got a bit of an update there on what's happening with, uh, with chips and what's happening or may not be happening with the dividend. Melissa, back yep. to you. Phil, thanks, and thank you for asking the questions uh, that we had on the panel here. Um, Karen, do you feel like you got an answer? Uh. <laughs> sort of. I think they'll reinstate a small dividend at yeah. some point. And I think that's the right answer, not a big dividend. I'm not in this for the dividend. 
right? If they got this giant plan with a huge capex, go ahead, execute. Yeah, yeah, and, know, and they the, have to know, have some sort of a dividend, dividend in order to remain in sort of the dividend-oriented funds, which you don't necessarily want to be pulled out of either. Um, in terms right. of the chip shortage, I mean, it's it's interesting that they're looking at longer-term commitments. They're going to need those. If they really want to hit those targets in 2030, Tim, I mean, as a shareholder, I, I would imagine you'd be glad if they were able to secure some of the supplies necessary in order to hit those targets. Well, they have, they, you know, they're laser-focused on what their targets are, too, in terms of their growth. So, you know, why not enter into those contracts? Also, as a shareholder, I'm happy to hear Although I pointed out where Tesla has been extraordinary, uh, frankly, at some of their vertical integration between some of their software and hardware that is at less reliance on certain chips, uh, I don't want to hear that GM is creating these businesses wholesale. And I think, uh, again, locking into long-term commitments and being able to be someone that can push around the supply chain because they're that big and that important, uh, I think is great news. All right, coming up, big bet against the banks, a huge trade that was spotted in the options market today as we gear up for earnings season. That's back. We are back right after this. Welcome back. Shares of Marvel Technology topping the tape today. The chip stock surging more than 7%, and it's a name Kramer mentioned in one of today's CNBC Investing Club newsletters. If you're not signed up, you're missing out. You can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox. Jim is giving you a front row seat to what stocks he's trading in his charitable trust. He'll tell you all about his winners and his losers. So sign up right now at cnbc.com backslash investing club, or just point your phone at that QR code on the side of the screen, and it will take you there. And by the way, Jim is sitting down with the CEO of Marvell Technology coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. All right, from the chips to the banks. <laughs> One trader in the options market just made a gigantic bet against the financials. Tony Zhang joins us now to break down the action. Tony. Yeah, Melissa, we saw a massive trade here across the tape here in financials for XLF, the ETF that tracks the financial sector. Uh, we traded fairly actively, about 240,000 contracts traded in XLF, which is about 1.4 times the average daily volume. But 30% of that volume from today was on a single trade. Over 70,000 contracts of the December $36 puts were purchased for 89 cents. These are puts that are about 5.5% out of the money. Now, we can't say for sure whether this is an outright bearish bet on the banks or if this was a protection trade against a long equity portfolio or a long equity position. But the fact that this trader went out and paid over $6 million in premium outright reflects what is a concern of a pullback here for financials, perhaps a bet on interest rates. But just to put this into perspective, the 2.3% of the ETS value that they paid on these puts reflects about a notional value of over a quarter billion dollar position if this was a protection play. Uh, thanks for that, Tony Grasso. How are you feeling about financials going into earnings? Uh, I mean, th this is definitely broken out. If you look at where it is on a long-term chart, it's overextended, but for obvious reasons. So I, I thought it was a protection bet, but when you hear the way Tony finished up in that, it, there's, there's not too many people that have that on, on their books. I, I think that the financials have run pretty aggressively, and I do think they have further to run, though, if I wanted to just tie it up. All right. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Elon Musk, a dog, and a multi-billion dollar crypto move. Welcome back to Fast Money. Elon Musk sending another crypto coin skyrocketing. This time, it was a picture of his dog that did it. The cryptocurrency is called Shiba Inu, and it soared more than 250% this week, thanks in part to Musk's tweet. He apparently got a Shiba Inu. 
named it Floki, and that's just sending the crypto world a flutter. But it, aside from SHIB, SHIBcoin, Karen, <laughs> there has been a big run in Bitcoin <laughs> and Ethereum and some of the ones that you guys on the panel might actually traffic in. <laughs> Right. It's been a slow, steady run the last, not even that long. Um, one thing that was interesting to me, I, I thought, you know, let's look at how Robinhood and Coinbase have done versus Bitcoin, because, you know, we made so much of oh, Robinhood gets so much of the revenue from uh, crypto trading and Coinbase. Obviously, that's what they do. And to my surprise, Bitcoin itself has far outpaced either of them over the period that Coinbase has and Hood have been public. So the last time Bitcoin was at 55,000, Coinbase, I think, had a 300 handle briefly. So uh, I'm sort of surprised that it's lagged as much as it has, both of them. Yeah. Um, Guy, do you think sh- the Shipcoin, do you think that Dogecoin is the ATM for Shipcoin? Me. I mean, is that, is it like a, only one dog coin can yeah. exist in the crypto universe? It's a very dangerous conversation. Uh, I actually have yeah. a dog. The breed is a Shizu. Other people pronounce it differently. I would have a field day with that coin. Listen, good for Elon, good for his dog. I think Shiba Inu won best in breed a few years ago at Westminster. It's a beautiful dog, but, you know, I can wax poetic about many things. Dog breeds and, and cryptocurrencies is not one of them. It's that dog's time to shine. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Yeah, I think for investors, Macy's can shine both as a trade and as an investment. Again, stock pulled back about 15%. Looks like it's bouncing here. I think there's a tactical trade on some of the headwinds here. But I do think that the longer-term story is very interesting. And I think fundamentally, you can own this one. Steve? Capri Holdings. I've been long this since around $18. I trimmed just a bit, but I am still long substantial amount. It traded down on worries about supply chain out of Vietnam. They don't have any of those worries. So this is a buyer's uh, gift to you. Mm. Karen. Yes, so I sort of think Coinbase is interesting for a trade here. Not a long-term investment for me, but just a trade on the heels of the Bitcoin run. Guy. Your documentary was fire emoji, Mel. I'm just putting it out there. People should watch. Uh, Oracle. You can watch it on YouTube. Jim Cramer starts right now. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.